Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. One and welcome to the conference, the Is It Time for Universal Basic Income, which Bristol Ideas is running with the Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath. I'm Andrew Kelly from Bristol Ideas and I'm hosting this session this morning. We've been discussing so far how technology is changing our lives and work and how this might continue to change what we do and how we do it. We're now looking at issues of the environment and well-being, about whether as a rich society, something like a universal basic income will enable us to live greener, happier and better lives. But what are the problems are we trying to solve here? And is UBI the only answer? I'm joined today by Anna Coote and James Plunkett. Anna Coote is a Principal Fellow at the New Economics Foundation and Project Director of the Social Guarantee. She was previously Director of Health Policy at the King's Fund, Deputy Director of the Institute for Public Policy Research, Editor of Current Affairs Television at Diverse Productions and Deputy Editor of The New Statesman. She was also Commissioner for Health with the UK Sustainable Development Commission for nine years from 2000. Her recent publications that she's written on her own or with co-authors include The Case for a Four-Day Week, The Case for Universal Basic Services and Universal Basic Income, A Union Perspective. James Plunkett has worked for over a decade at the heart of public policy, exploring how to solve society's thorniest problems. In the late 2000s, he was working at 10 Downing Street when the full scale of the digital revolution started to make itself felt. He has since spent a decade grappling with the social ramifications of economic change, from leading influential studies into the gig economy and prosperity to overseeing technology at one of the UK's biggest charities. His new book is End State, Nine Ways Society is Broken and How We Fix It. Both speakers will uh, introduce the, the, the session and talk for around 10 minutes each, and then we'll have a discussion. Do let us have comments and questions, and you can ask questions in the box below, and we'll come to those in turn. Uh, Anna, could we start with you? Thank you for joining us. Thank you, and good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I hope you can see my slides. We had a... Um, a bit of a, a crisis about screen sharing earlier on, but there it is. And uh, I have to say next and ask you to move them on. So uh, I'm going to talk about the social guarantee. It's a new initiative. It's about things that will be familiar to many of you. Um, next, please. This is where we start. This is Kate Rayworth's donut, um, Safe and Just Space for Humanity. And it's about, so the social guarantee is about meeting human needs within planetary boundaries. And the idea is that everyone is entitled to life's essentials, both today and for future generations. And so we need a delivery system that is both universal and sufficient. Next. And here's the social guarantee as a diagram. And as you'll see, it's about pooling resources and working together to meet all our needs and it has two components one is a living income which is made up of um, a fair living wage and a guaranteed minimum income and the other is universal services and these are if you like in-kind benefits and these are that on the screen you've got the ones that we're focusing on and the idea is that the social guarantee is to ensure that we can all live well within planetary boundaries. Next, please. So when we talk about life's essentials, what do we mean? Our, um, our ideas are, are based in 
theory about needs and capabilities and the theorists tend to converge about what life's essentials are, that there are basic needs that we all have, which are health and critical autonomy. They're sometimes expressed differently, but these needs are universal across time and space. How our needs are met will vary widely, but there are some ways of satisfying our needs that are, are constant and enduring. For example, we all need, we will always all need water and nutrition and housing, education and healthcare. What the social guarantee focuses on are education and healthcare, housing, childcare, adult social care, transport and access to digital information. Now that isn't um, a definitive list, it's just what we have chosen to focus on, what we see as the sort of social infrastructure, but um, it, the same principles apply to, um, to others, other of life's essentials. Next, please. So we recognize that every one of life's essentials, every need is different and requires a customized approach so that everyone can get what they need. And we like to, we think it's helpful to see them on the spectrum. So at one end of the spectrum, we will typically rely on individual cash payments. Food is a good example. Um, and we wouldn't expect that to be collectively provided by the state or by any other organization to everyone. So we, we look to the need for cash, sufficient cash at that end. And at the other end, there are essential things that we can't possibly all afford ourselves. And therefore we depend on acting together through public institutions and through other uh, organizations. And this is where universal services come in. But for universal and sufficient access for all across that spectrum, we usually need a contribution of individual and collective contributions. So even at the individual end, you still need collective intervention to make sure that everyone has got access to decent, affordable, nutritious and sustainable food. So thank you. Next slide. Now here, there's a picture here of two publications on the subject of universal services. Most recently, hot off the press, uh, the New Economics Foundation has published on the social guarantee, the case for universal services. And then the book that we published with Polity Press last year, the case for universal basic services. And what these say is that um, we need to pool our resources and share risks and work together so that we can all meet all our needs. And it's about reclaiming the collective ideal and repurposing it for the 21st century. So the collective ideal was very strong in the middle of the last century when we were setting up the welfare state in the first place, but it tends to have been forgotten. And we want to enlarge what we would call the social wage in order to promote secure foundations for everyone. Universal services generate jobs and skills at all jobs or jobs at all skills level and right across the country. So you, you always need services that meet your need wherever you may be. So it's a good generator of jobs and it's designed, the service is designed to maximize ecological sustainability built into the system. Next slide, please. So while we say that every area of need requires a customized approach, there's a framework that we offer that is applied in each case. And these are some of the elements of that framework. First of all, we have to see it as investment and not expenditure. So what is spent on meeting needs is about um, investing, valuing and building the social infrastructure, which yields 
strong dividends in social, economic and environmental terms. Secondly, that access to life's essentials isn't a privilege or a concession, it's a, it's a need. Everyone should have a right to have their, need, their needs met. Thirdly, we don't think this is all about top-down uniform provision by the state. We recognise the need to be multiple models of ownership. But all providers, whether they're in the voluntary sector, in the state sector or in the, the private sector, um, share the same set of public interest obligations. And here we look to a system we call social licensing that has been um, put forward by the people who work on the foundational economy. So that shared set of public obligations is very important. We want to put people in control so that decisions about the social guarantee, about its scope and and so on are grounded in democratic dialogue and then services themselves are co-produced with service users at a local level. We want um, built-in sustainability so all collective measures are designed to meet climate goals and stay within planetary boundaries. There's an awful lot of experience to build on. Um, We've got right across the world, we've got experience of provision of services, collective action to meet needs, and we can build on the successes and failures of that experience. And critically, this is it's not a kind of sudden uh, silver bullet kind of idea. It's both radical and it's pragmatic because you can introduce it gradually. Next slide, please. Now, where does the government stand in this? So we see the role of the, the government and state institutions being to provide services directly where it's appropriate. I mean, healthcare in the UK would be one example there and, and education. Um, but beyond that, it's got four essential functions. Firstly, to ensure equal access for everyone, to set and enforce standards and obligations, to collect and invest funds in order to ensure equal access and decent standards and to support local control and uh, coordinate services between the different models of ownership for the best outcomes. So that's what we want the state, we want to see the state as, as, as having those functions. Next slide. Now, I'm gonna to have to go through this very quickly, but we have, I mean, there is a lot of research drawn on existing experience about the benefits of collective action, what can be gained. So I'll just run through these very quickly. Firstly, equality. Public services are highly redistributive. It's, if you have public services, in-kind benefits, if you like, they're estimated to reduce income inequalities by 20% across OECD countries. They're more efficient than individual market transactions um, through economies of scale, lower transaction costs. You can minimize uh, profit extraction. For example, the United States spends twice as much on their market-based healthcare and has lower life expectancy than the UK. Um, and there are substantial social and economic returns and environmental returns on investment in the social infrastructure. So that's efficiency. For solidarity, this is all about working together, pooling resources and so on. It builds a sense of mutual regard, empathy and interdependence. And then sustainability, and I realise for this session this is really important, but there's a whole plenty that we we have to say that I haven't got time to go through today about the ways in which quality public services can help to um, prevent harm to health and social well-being so that you're 
um, sustaining services by not triggering costly demands through not preventing harm. It can generate secure employment, as I say, and help to stabilize the economy. And perhaps most important to cut GHG emissions and safeguard natural resources through this system of, of uh, collective endeavor. Next slide, please. Now, um, just before I finish, I want to come on to what I regard as the limits of UBI schemes. Um, the first, I mean, I've done a lot of work on this, and the first thing that strikes me is that UBI can mean everything to everyone. Um, there's a lot of dodgy definitions and claims about it, what it means, um, how much uh, you mean, how much you're going to give people, who's going to get it, how it's organized, how long it's going to last, where the money's going to come from, and what counts as success. And there have been lots of practical experiments, but which are much lauded in debate, but they've not led to any permanent UBI schemes. And one reason for that is that, as uh, Luke Martinelli at Bath University has said, uh, it can either be adequate or affordable, but it can't be both. A good scheme will be unaffordable, and an affordable scheme will not be adequate to achieve the objectives even of the of those of the advocates. And the critical thing for me is um, the trade-offs. So you can't just talk about launching a scheme on UBI and not take account of what you're not going to spend the money on. So if you're spending money on cash payments for a sufficient scheme, there's a really a sufficient UBI scheme, there's a real danger that you will um, starve uh, public services of the, of the money that they need in order to be improved and extended. And on the whole, when I come across people who campaign for UBI, they all say, oh, yes, of course, we want public services, but they're kind of heedless. They don't seem to pay any attention to the effects of those trade-offs and to what needs to be done to safeguard our public services, to improve them and to extend them across the range of human needs. So that's where I think we need to make changes. Um, as far as I can tell, there are no significant contributions from UBI to tackling the climate emergency or to reducing inequalities, although they can, in some cases, slightly reduce poverty. They don't do anything to disturb existing inequalities. They also, UBI schemes, create a single powerful lever in the hands of the state. Now, if you have a welfare system that's based on lots of in-kind benefits, it's that power is much more diffused and much harder for the government to turn on and off. Although, of course, they have done a great deal to undermine public services, but it's not the same as having a, a single payment that you can just turn on and off. And we know what that's like with what's happening to universal credit. And the ideology that um, it signals, I think, that money and markets are the route to freedom and to flourishing. And yet it doesn't meet human needs. So it sends out a signal that what matters is putting cash in people's pockets, not collective action to make sure we all have access to life's essentials. And um, then you have to look at who your friends are. Though so a lot of very enthusiastic supporters of UBI include champions of the monetarist capitalist system and also the new plutocrats in Silicon Valley of the digital economy. So um, you have to ask, well, why do they like this idea so much so that you can pay people just enough to keep on shopping without disturbing their capacity to carry on 
being super rich. Next slide, please. So services and money. What we at the social guarantee, we take the view that both are essential. Cash benefits and in-kind benefits are essential. They're two sides of the same coin. Universal services create a social income, which is collectively funded and has to be sufficient and universal in order and, and accor available according to need, not means. So if you have a larger social income, more in-kind benefits, that means you need less cash to enable people to meet their needs and to flourish. So the two are interdependent and they have to be mutually reinforcing, mutually supporting, if you like. So those trade-offs matter. And the more public money you spend on cash payments, the more universal services will be starved of funds. So you have to take that into account. And any um, additional funds, because people always say, oh, well, governments can always find money, you know, look at what happened during COVID, etc. Well, that is true. But on the other hand, there are really important things we need that additional money for. For, for example, um, green infrastructure, dealing with the climate emergency. So I don't think it's it works to just say, well, the money can always be found. Um, and um, so there we have the, 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 there is one form which you could, you could, if you must, describe it as UBI, Universal Basic Income Guarantee, which we think is compatible with uh, the social guarantee with universal services. And we regard that as part of what the social guarantee should be about. So it's not paying everyone money, whether they need it or not, but it's making sure that everyone has a right to an income that doesn't fall below an agreed level of sufficiency. Now, that's not part of my talk today, but it's been developed by my colleagues at the New Economics Foundation. And so I think if we think in terms of a minimum income guarantee or a basic income guarantee, if you want to call it that, then we're in business. We can do business together. And I think you've got one more slide. Please. Yes. So, so in conclusion, we want the social guarantee is about universal and sufficient access for everyone to life's essentials, including um, a fair living income and universal services and seeing how those two can work together in the most effective way. We want to put climate first, and we regard the social pillar, sorry, the social guarantee as the social pillar of the Green New Deal. So to help to create that safe and just space for humanity that I showed you in the second slide. So cash and in-kind benefits must support each other, and a cash payment scheme or a UBI scheme must not be a barrier, either fiscally or ideologically, to more and better collective services. And so my appeal to UBI supporters, and I can well understand what you know, what the sort of the, the good the good intentions behind it is to focus more on meeting needs and less on paying cash. And final slide. So this is where you can find out more. There's the Social Guarantee website and Twitter feed, and then a link to um, the new publication from the, the New Economics Foundation. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Well, we'll be taking up some of these points as we go through the discussion. Um, I think just before I come on to James, this afternoon we've got a, a, a short interview with Mayor Siddiqui from um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. She's one of the mayors for a guaranteed income in the United States, where there are various pilot projects underway. And, um, and she'll be talking a little bit more about that, but and that's something we may come on to as well. Uh, James, I'll hand over to you for your, your introductory comments. 
Great, thanks, Andrew. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll jump straight in. So, um, and I suppose I was going to start by talking a bit less about the basic income um, itself and more uh, making some, I guess, slightly meta points about the um, the debate about basic income, which I think is so on my mind for a couple of reasons. So one is, um, uh, as you said, I published recently uh, a book called End State, which talked about quite a lot of um, big radical ideas, and it was it was interesting to see how the reaction to uh, a basic income, which is one of the ideas I discuss in the book, was very polarized um, and not very productive. So people kind of either kind of embracing the idea with both hands and saying they were on board or people saying, um, just rejecting the idea out of hand. I'm quite interested in that. And, and also, I guess on my mind is uh, the universal credit card that is taking place today, essentially, um, and how sort of unproductive some of that debate you know, seem, seems to have been. So, so I guess I'll start by sort of saying a bit about why I think the basic income debate sometimes isn't all that productive. And then I'll say a bit about what what I think the basic income debate is really getting at and um, try and sort of get under the skin of that a bit. Um, and then I'll, I'll say a bit about what I think personally in terms of my views on, on basic income. Um, so I guess why, why is the debate about basic income often slightly unproductive? I, I think for me, it's um, one of those debates where people sort of shout past each other. Um, and it's a debate where kind of the volume, if you like, is turned up to sort of 10 out, 10 out of 10 in the sense that people who support a basic income often sort of shout the kind of most radical version of their of their views that a basic income should happen. Um, and then people who oppose a basic income sort of shout back with the most radical kind of counter to that that says, you know, this, this idea is unaffordable, it's dangerous, it's going to increase poverty and so on. Um, and I think what's quite interesting is each side of that debate is appealing to very different arguments. So you know, typically supporters of a basic income will appeal to ideas like uh, the, its simplicity, the kind of clarity of a basic income, uh, the universality, the way that it would tackle stigma, for example, in the benefit system. And then you get the opponents, on the other hand, saying, well, you know, look at the, uh, if you like, the inefficiency of a basic income system, because of course, it's a flatter way of distributing cash transfers. It's much, therefore, less mathematically efficient, if you like, at tackling poverty, um, much less well targeted at people who need the money the most. Um, and of course, all those things are true, you know, at the same time. So basic income would be simpler and clearer and more universal and also less efficient than the current more targeted welfare system. So in a way, both sides are kind of appealing to quite different criteria and sort of, in a sense, speaking past each other. And I think that just sort of points to the fact that in a way that the basic income debate is really a bit of a meta debate about you know, what is it we want from the welfare system? What is it we need from the welfare state? Um, and it kind of, if you like, operates more on that level. Um, and, and that I think is really interesting. It's a really worthwhile debate. So, so it's kind of second point I was going to make is what, what therefore is the basic income debate really about and what is it saying about the welfare system? Um, I think this is really interesting. And I think, as I said, it, it, you know, it's quite a shouty debate often. I think if you turn down the volume um, and I guess try out what is a less radical version of the basic income argument, it can be quite interesting um, and you can kind of start to understand a bit more what is some of the nuance to, to some of the claims that sit behind um, the basic income as an idea. So I, I kind of just going to try out a kind of a more moderate version, if you like, of the basic income argument that I think pushes in the same direction, but goes a bit less far. So I think, you know, if you were to make an argument of that kind, I think, you know, you would argue that um, our debate about welfare, I think, you know, has become 
dangerously narrow in that almost all of our public debate about welfare is about the kind of mathematical efficiency of the welfare system and the efficiency with which it targets money at the lowest income households. Um, and I think you point out that you know, our public debate, therefore, on days like today is, is very narrow. And we tend to talk only about you know, material measures of poverty, for example, relative distributions, and this kind of war of the charts that you get on days like today, where you kind of, you know, different sides of the debate kind of going backwards and forwards with distributional charts. And I think you'd argue if you kind of were you know, tempted by the idea of a basic income, I think you'd say, that's all fine. And it's important to think about the efficiency of a welfare system. But you know, other things matter too. So questions like, how do people feel when they use the welfare system? And do they feel stigmatized? Um, do they feel valued? Um, do they feel reassured? Or do, or do they feel anxious? Um, I think you'd, you know, you, you could ask questions like, is it easy to understand the welfare system? Or is the welfare system incredibly complicated to people? And do people have any idea what kind of um, benefits they're entitled to? Or is it is it too complex for people to plan their lives? Uh, I think you point out as well that the welfare system is very clearly a political football and it doesn't have that broad-based support that you know, I think you could argue that the NHS has, or even a policy these days like the minimum wage has quite broad-based political support where parties compete over their policies, whereas in the welfare system, it's, it's, it's a political football kicked backwards and forwards. And I think, you know, if, if you want to sort of push in the direction of a basic income, but maybe not go quite as far as a full implementation, I think you could easily argue that we've got our balance of priorities slightly wrong um, and that it would be worth us putting a bit more emphasis on things like simplicity, clarity, universality, and a bit less emphasis, therefore, on things like the efficiency of the welfare system. Um, and I think actually that argument is quite persuasive. Um, and this kind of comes into what you know, my view of my personal view of a basic income, um, which is that I think a basic income can be quite helpful as a North Star when we're talking about welfare reforms over the very long term. And that, that's, that doesn't mean it's the kind of policy that you would you know, introduce tomorrow or even the next three years or five years. But if you want something to kind of give us a sense of direction and the direction we should be moving in when it comes to very long term welfare reforms, say over 20, 30, 40 years, I think a basic income can be an interesting sort of North Star to aim for um, because it does you know, let, it, it makes us think about things like, is the system clear and simple and non-stigmatizing? And does it make sense to people? And so, yeah, I, I used to be a very strong opponent of the basic income. I, you know, I'm, I kind of call myself a recovering economist <laughs> in the sense that I used to be very um, obsessed with the distributional charts and that kind of those questions of the allocative efficiency of the welfare system. And I guess I've changed my mind just very quickly. There's sort of three main reasons. One is I think increasingly in my work, I've seen the incredible harm that's caused by the by the complexity and the stigma in the welfare system, just the profound harm that causes to people that have to interact with the welfare system that is not captured in those charts or it's not in the Excel spreadsheets, you know, it's not picked up in those debates, but causes huge harm. Um, I, think, I think I've also become more cynical about the prospect for political progress. And I think I've started to feel that frankly, a, you know, narrowly targeted welfare system is always going to be a political football. And actually the, the way to break some of the politics is to move towards more universality. And because I think that's, that is the only way for me that you get broader based political support for, for the welfare system. 
And then finally, on a, on a more personal note, I guess I've my career moved into technology, and I became increasingly interested in this question of you know, the fact that the current welfare system just doesn't work for people in you know the kind of new forms of work around the gig economy and insecure forms of work, you know, uberization of the labour market and so on and so on. And it does seem to me a basic income, or well, certainly a simpler, clearer welfare system is the kind of thing we need given the way the labour market is, is changing and becoming just much more fluid and the rise of self-employment for example being you know just kind of one one aspect of that so i think that's um yeah just a few reflections really on sort of why the argument how the argument plays out why why i think it's actually quite a healthy debate if we sort of moderate our positions a bit and why i've kind of shifted a bit towards the basic income position over time and um, you know, some people will disagree a lot with everything I've just said. Some people will think I'm being too moderate. Some people will think I'm being too radical. But um, I think at least the, these are really healthy debates and um, never more so than on a day like today where we're seeing just how sort of depressing and um, how much lack of progress we've made on welfare. I think you know, UBI gives us a, a route forward and a slightly longer term debate to have. Thank you, James. Um, we will be coming back to these points all, all day, in fact, and um, it's worth, if anyone hasn't had a chance to see them yet, to watch the first two sessions this morning with Diane Coyle and Martin Ford, and then with Gavin Kelly, Anna Dent and Kate Bell about technology and the way that's uh, either propelling us towards UBI or not. I want to take us to, to, to the big issues that this, issue, that this session is addressing, um, which is about what is the best system we can create to solve the problems that we have currently. Now, last night, Adam Toos talked about the poly crisis. And you know, when you list all the crises we're facing, they're huge. But the issues particularly around what will people what do people need to live their lives better in a more sustainable way to reduce overworking to become more productive and to make lives more meaningful and i'll start with you anna you talked about this a little bit in in your presentation what the social guarantee could do um what what kind of system do you think we need to enable people to live those lives to the full well i think the social guarantee is a, is a good start I, i'm i'm a bit perplexed by, by the, the the phrase that that James kept using talking about the welfare system and I think James you're only talking about money and um, and I think that what we need to do is to think about income benefits as a form of a virtual form of money a social wage a virtual income or whatever and think of the two together because one of the dangers of the um, the debate about welfare and I agree with you about the chart wars and you know the, the the shouting and everything is to uh, is to think about about what people need and how to meet their needs. So I suppose in answer to your question, Andrew, I'd say, you know, let's start with people with what people need. And whether you scour through the academic literature or whether you engage in local conversations, you come up with the same things. People say they want the same things, and it's not. We're not now talking about. Um, how do you want to feel in the system although i think that's important i think it was a very good point you made but actually you know what do i need to live, live a life that i value to be able to do what i what i feel i should be able to do in my life and they come to the same things and it it's it's not it's hardly controversial so once we've acknowledged that we can't ensure that everyone has access to those essentials unless we combine in-kind benefits with with cash we're just missing the point and and so i think 
you know, part of what we're doing with the social guarantee and why we include a minimum income guarantee with universal services is to try and get around this. You know, I've been part of that, uh, you know, the shouting battle about UBI saying, oh, for God's sake, you know, it's a crazy idea. Don't go there for the following reasons. But, but, but if we talk about the need that people have to be treated as decent human beings, not to feel stigmatized, to understand what's going on and where they can go for help. Those things are really important, so I agree with that. But it's about starting with understanding what people themselves think they need, not just what the you know the experts think people need, and then how you go about meeting them and recognizing that cash in hand cannot meet them. That's a good start. James, you talk about in your book about that, don't you, about um, starting with the kind of not something imposed, but what people want and need to, to live their lives better. Yeah, there's a great um, quote from Keynes. Uh, I'm going to completely mess up. <laughs> it's to the effect of, um, you know, you can't start with the economics. When it comes to big questions about the future, you can't start with the economics. You've got to start with the ethics. Um, that's an economist speaking. Um and I think that's that must be right. You, know, you can't. It's not about incremental tweaks or sort of optimizing taper rates. And the sort of highly technocratic debate that sort of you know, dominates so much of our, our, our public debate. Um, I think the, the, the thing I'd add is um, is, is technology. I suppose. I, I, and and I, you know, the big the big argument I kind of set out in the book is I'm trying to kind of understand why are we in this mess we're in. This kind of overwhelming sense of things spinning out of control. This sense of sort of the mounting social problems that are just piling up unresolved. Um, and I think for me, so much of, you know, what those problems have in common is that they are emerging from this new kind of economy, um, and, you know, the, the gig economy, lack of lack of job security in the gig economy, um, the problem of these you know, huge digital platforms and what do we do about the, the re-emergence of monopoly, but a very new kind of monopoly, um, problem of burnout, mental health, that you know the kind of unsustainable way in which people are working and um, some of the latest surveys around job intensity that is just you know kind of the intensity of our work is leaving everyone feeling burned out and i i do think um that, that a lot of what those common problems have in common is they derive from this new economy that's sort of emerging before our eyes this new form of call it what you like the digital capitalism the phrase that i use and um seems to me that is not dissimilar to some of the for the moment in the industrial revolution when likewise technology was turning our lives upside down these new problems were emerging that as yet had been unresolved um and similarly at the time the government didn't have the tools to solve those problems and had to develop entirely new tools a whole new policy toolkit and i just think when you look at the government and the set of tools that we've got we're still using 20th century tools we're still using a 20th century welfare state 20th century economic regulation and so on to solve problems that are 21st century problems that for me you know a lot of it comes back to that Anna. Yeah, could, could i add i think um well it, it's useful to think about the industrial revolution certainly and about you know the, the, the huge turbulence that that people experienced then and the you know the, the misery that was caused by by change but what we're doing what, what we can't avoid confronting now is the climate emergency and so everything we do has to put that first. This is my view anyway. I don't, just don't think that you can um, think about, uh, about anything, including, you know, uh, modernizing the welfare system. So that, that's one thing. The second thing is I, I think there's a danger 
in if you, if you start with the idea of meeting people's needs as we do at the social guarantee a lot of that can't be done some of it i mean technology can help and to get technology can also interfere so i think that's what you're saying as well but these are really enduring old-fashioned things about caring for people about human relationships about you know having a roof over your head um about getting from a to b where certainly technology could come in in some forms but but the, the caring foundation if you like of a lot of the public services that make our lives possible cannot be um well you talk about old-fashioned tools i think you know they, they may have been developed quite a lot in the 20th century we still need them now they're not going to be replaced by technologies i don't know that you were suggesting that but i just think we have to keep um keep a handle on the fundamental importance of human relationships and care as a way of meeting people's needs as a way of enabling us all to flourish as a way of confronting the climate emergency and so on james yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, certainly disagree, I certainly agree on climate. I think, um, I do think for me, it's you know, one of the biggest risks we face on climate is, um, will people give government the license to spend the money and you know, do the things that are necessary if they don't feel their living standards are being, you know, if they feel under pressure? And it's, I mean, what a live example we have of that now, right, with energy bills soaring and energy bills will need to go up even further to, for the kind of investment in net zero um and i sort of i think in some ways i think kind of cracking the living standards challenge is is one of the things that would almost be an enabler and is necessary to unlock the ability to kind of deal with the political challenge on the planet um i i, I think i think i sort of agree and disagree on the point about um existing tools because i think i absolutely agree the kind of if you like the ends we're trying to achieve are things like um you know, security people feeling a sense of security are are surely kind of you know timeless to some degree um but i do think that the changes underway are so profound so things like the um you know, the new ways in which the labor market is now functioning and at, at the most basic level many of the tools we develop social insurance for example emerged in a world of of, of employment of, of waged employment um and just just don't function when it comes to this new world and so when you see you know you know uber drivers kind of being the kind of emblematic example trying to interact with the welfare system so there's just a fundamental disconnect i think between some of these kind of 20th century ways of giving people things like um, security of income and well, you are only talking about that because yeah. i mean uber drivers can get access to the nhs they can send their kids to school yeah. yeah. So it isn't. I think that the, the danger is to think about the welfare system as just being money. Yeah. And I, yeah. I mean, I'd agree with you. Of course, you know, the system of who, you know who pays tax and who who is eligible for for, for cash benefits is is complicated and, and doubtless needs to uh, be modernised and changed to suit the, the gig economy. I don't disagree with that, but I do think that you have to remember that welfare is about an awful lot more than money. Can I ask you both, sorry, sorry, Andy, can I ask you both something you've both written about, which is, 
you know, that about the four, uh, a four-day week and, and what that might deliver. I mean, you know, there was a report in the, the Financial Times yesterday, which is not new news. There's been a few reports on this about the decline in leisure time, um, which, which is happening. Um, and, um, and the burdens of that has particularly placed on women, in fact, in terms of household work as well as work um, outside the household. Um, what would a four-day week do for... Um, well-being and for the environment. Um, I'll start with you, James, and then come to Anna on that. For a start, I think, because these debates can get a bit gloomy, I think, and um, actually my book's very optimistic about many of these challenges. So I think um, I, part, part I just find this a fascinating example of how we make social progress. So, um, you know, um, 150 years ago, the, two day, the idea of a two-day weekend was, seemed, seemed utterly radical, and, and it emerged in response to the Industrial Revolution. And I mean, what we might today call burnout, you know, the sense of people could not sustain working patterns in conditions of industrialism um, six days a week. And so, you know, the union movement and progressive employers and the government, um, sort of this kind of three-way push towards that, what was at the time an incredibly radical idea of a two-day weekend, which of course then we came to think was, you know, we sort of, we forget, it, we just think it has always, always existed and now it seems inevitable. Um, and it's not a coincidence, surely, that, again, as our economy goes through these profound technological changes, that we're having another debate about, about burnout um, and this kind of new, uh, very radical idea of a three-day weekend is emerging. So I think that's really interesting. And in general, this one thing that gives me hope is there's so many examples from history where ideas go from seeming completely impossible and utopian and unaffordable and even dangerous to suddenly being accepted as inevitable in the, from like public sewer systems to two-day weekend to the NHS. Um, so I think, yeah, just to, sort of, to answer your question more directly, I think um, it does seem that yeah, burnout and the intensity of work in this digital economy is not sustainable at the current pace that people, you know, at the current ways of working. And I do think um, this idea of working in a more intentional way uh, you know, I think it's not a coincidence that productivity is performance has been pretty poor and we're all sort of running on the treadmill and getting nowhere despite the treadmill speeding up. So um, I think it's about slowing down, being more intentional in our use of technology, um, addressing some of these problems about burnout head on. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's, I, I just think it will happen. I think it's one of those ideas that seems utopian today. In 20 years time, it will seem like it was always inevitable. Anna, you've written about this as well. Yes, I, I think I probably agree that it is something that I mean we know we, we know we used to send children up clean chimneys, so we do change our ideas about what humane work is all about. I think well, you can start you can have a look at it from the the climate dimension, the ecological dimension, where the economy has simply got to change. It's got to change in order to meet our carbon targets and to safeguard the planet and safeguard civilization, you know, or whatever we want to call it, um, in which we would want to put this welfare system that we are trying to think about. So we start there, we know that there's going to be, that the economy must change, and probably with uh, almost, I would say almost certainly, with uh, fewer jobs in the way that we see them now. And although, of course, it's not a, a simple equation, the idea of being able to have more jobs that are using less time for each people, for, for every worker. So spreading the available employment so that everybody's got some work. So that's one thing. 
And the other thing is is to um, unlock what I regard as a sort of intractable barrier towards gender equality by ensuring that it is um, men as well as women who work the shorter hours. And it's almost in a way more important that, that, that men work shorter hours. Women already do on the whole. They, you know, too many women are working part-time while their partners are working full-time or overtime in order to keep the family uh, it, you know having the things that they need and um and women get trapped in low paid insecure work because of that so i think for gender reasons and for climate reasons and, and for this sort of sense of historical um you know forward-looking inevitability that we will get a four-day weekend end. but i don't think it needs to be a three-day weekend sure. because you want that reduction in working hours to be for uh, to, to be what people need so some people will need uh, to use their time in one way and others in another way so i would say let's have a flexible view of what a 30-hour week might look like and not just plump i don't think he was suggesting this but not just plump for a for a three-day weekend and we found out you know during the covid experience that people are much more likely to to accommodate employers are more likely to we used to have to argue against you know the idea that employers can't possibly manage a workforce with people working at different times and now we've proved that this is quite possible employers are capable of organizing different shifts and different arrangements with people coming in staying at home and you know working different um, allocations of hours and so on so we can do it i think we almost certainly will do it it's for care and it's for climate and it's for gender equality i want to come on to some of the the audience questions now and i, I won't take them in the actual order because I, I want to link one that um that you that you've just been talking about and, and just before this about what, what we learn from history through the attempts to create reforms like this and james you talk in your book about things like the beverage report and so on and anna you talked about the collective ideal uh, developing that i mean one you know this is going to take a lot of buy-in isn't it these kind of changes whether it's universal basic services whether it's ubi man minimum income guarantee and so on and um, what lessons have, have you both learned from previous reforms that that um that can help us now in terms of get, getting that collective buy-in and that collective action um anna i'll start with you Ooh, well where, where, where to start um i suppose you could say that uh, crisis is a good um a trigger for radical change and we we've had a crisis with the pandemic and we are going to have another crisis with the ensuing financial uh fallout from the crisis financial and economic fallout from the crisis so i suppose that's one thing we've learned also that we've learned that it is possible to have a system that is very very popular with the electorate that is about uh, pooling risks and sharing resources and helping each other to get what we need and I mean, I'm talking about the National Health Service but you could also talk about the Education Service and I suppose another uh, a lesson from from that is that uh, we we need to be aware of um, taking these things for granted because they're hugely valuable both in kind of quasi-economic terms and in ethical and human terms but they are under threat 
James, you talk you talk about crisis as well in in your book, and also about the um, the the way that the NHS is valued as against other forms of um, of, of, of public expenditure. Yeah, I think um, I think the role of crisis is really interesting. I, I always think um, a good metaphor is that the the it's the, the way that the way that rain can unleash a mudslide. So the rain doesn't, if you like, cause the mudslide. That that's the kind of you know, the mounting up of mud over the years. This kind of mounting of social problems, I guess. Um, but then the crisis kind of you know, unlocks it and creates the conditions in which something things kind of come loose. If that makes sense. Um, I think there's like a couple of lessons. One sort of slightly gloomy, and then one more positive. So um, the sort of gloomy lesson, I think, is. Um, it thinks things things tend to get quite bad before they get better so <laughs> sort of striking when you look throughout history at these mounting social problems in the, particularly in the 19th century problems like um you know the problem of sewage for example when you know society rapidly urbanized um, there was no public sewer system to speak of um sewage literally mounted on the banks of the thames um, and got so bad that you know, MPs were literally running from Parliament, sort of clutching handkerchiefs to their noses to kind of to, to, to run away from the stench. Um, and it was only then that government finally sort of accepted the need to do something it had never done before, which was raise raise money to build public sewer systems that solved the problem. And the sewage, you know, literally, is a good metaphor, I think, because the sewage got you know, six feet deep before they accepted that, the need to act. So there's a kind of... Um, it takes quite a long time. A lot of mud has to build up, if you like, before things 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 break, um, or vested interests break. I think the more the more optimistic thing is this point about um, there's a certain inevitability to the whole thing. It, it's it's very hard for the system, if you like, to sustain um, self-evidently bad social problems. And this is sort of the Keynes point about kind of the power of a good idea over time, kind of you know over power powers vested interests. I do think um, you know, once an idea emerges, once it's clear there's a problem of this kind and once an idea emerges to fix it, it, it does take time, but there's a certain inevitable momentum to that, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, so that sort of sense of, you know, we, we get there in the end. And I think the, the last thing I'd say is I think, I think hope plays a really important part in that because I think quite often these periods of great change are moments when the anger turns into a sense of hope and a sense of belief that things can change. And I think that one of the risks at a point, you know, point we're at now is the anger is a kind of fatalistic anger or a sort of directionless kind of fury type you know, anger. And I think actually, um, you know, in a way, the missing ingredient is hope. It is kind of things can change. There are ideas out there. Things can get better. They have got better before we can do this. And that that's the sort of the magic ingredient, I think, that often sort of, as I say, like, it you know, turns that turns that sense of crisis into a sense of change. I'll, I'll bring in some other audience questions here. I won't ask you um, to answer them each of them, but if you do want to jump in, do do, do. the first one's for you, Anna, which is about just expanding a bit on on what, what uh, this is a question from. I, I actually, my screen is so small, I actually can't see the name. But it's a question about um, why you prefer the direct provision of services over letting people buy the services they need using cash benefits, e.g., a universal basic income. Okay, well, not all of the uh, of the needs that we have and share can be bought through cash. 
and or if they can be but they'll be ruinous for some people especially those on low income so think about childcare for example why do i think that childcare should be part of the social guarantee and collectively provided for people it doesn't mean to say that there wouldn't be um, a minimum contribution that parents would make for childcare but it would be organized in a way that made it accessible for everyone and most people cannot afford decent high quality childcare especially if they've got more than one child so that's why I think we need to think in terms of collective provision rather than individual cash payment. And um, it, it is about the redistributive effects. It's about the fact that it's a, it's about a system that, that where we where we all participate in making sure that everyone's okay. You know, it is about sharing and helping each other. It's about mutual aid. And um, otherwise, you can have a system where you can scrabble around and do some version of UBI and people have a bit more money in their pockets and some people will still be enormously rich and other people will be extremely poor and will not be able to meet their asset. They won't be able to get the transport they need. They won't be able to get the housing they need. They won't be able to get the adult social care or the childcare. And for all we know, if things get worse, they won't even get the education or the healthcare they need. So it's kind of a no-brainer in a way. Uh, we just have to do things together. Um, this is for both of you, which is about what would you increase taxes on, um, to, on wealth and waste, uh, James? Yeah, good question. Um, it's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you have to say you have to say you know wealth is is surely under tax. I, I mean, also think um, you know these emerging highly profitable you know i mean arguably kind of monopolistic profits that are emerging in certain parts of the economy i think there's a there's a big question about um how do we socialize and share out um some of the wealth that's being generated you know the, the profit essentially that's being generated in um in the very high tech parts of the economy and yeah i think probably most likely is that we need quite new mechanisms to do those kinds of things these you know these are these are these are new these these new entities of you know, Google, Facebook, and so on, uh, are just unlike anything we've seen before. Um, and so I do think finding ways to, I mean, essentially tax, um, you know, the profits that are being generated in those very high tech parts of the economy um, it, it, it is, is going to be part of this. Uh, Anna? Yes, to all of that, and tax, unearned assets, wealth, unearned assets, land possibly um and uh, also turn the system of consumer tax if we're going to go on with it from just taxing everything to taxing things that are uh, that, that are that are harmful that are um unnecessary so we and think about higher taxes on luxury goods which are causing undue harm to the natural environment plenty of opportunities you know we're not short of ideas about what we can tax the point, the point I'd add is, um, is some people, going back to basic income, sometimes people sort of counter the basic income idea by saying, you know, income tax would have to rise by X pennies, or which I always think slightly misses the point because, you know, it, it strikes me as a bit like saying, you know, in, in, I don't know, in the late 1800s that to have a welfare state, you'd have to increase the horse tax by some painful amount. I mean, of course, the, the real thing you do is you introduce new, new ways of raising revenue. You don't just work within the current setups you don't just sort of tweak the values of income tax so yeah, I, 
Yeah. Many of these taxes just... won't exist today. They won't, they won't be with us now. Anna. You just spend it on uh, on on cash benefits. You see, you use that those <laughs> those resources for uh, improving the in-kind benefits and extending them so that they're, they're available and affordable for everyone. Yeah. Another question, and it's actually not in the questions, but I noticed in the chat was, you know, one of the biggest problems we have with, with people's well-being these days is access to housing in this country. And, you know, whether it's public housing or the ability to, um, you know, raise uh, income, having the income for a mortgage and so on. What, what would you, what, what would both your, how would you contribute in terms of the work you're doing to, to better housing provision in the UK? Anna? Well, that's a huge question, and there's a very long, there's some very long answers to it. I think you need stronger rights for tenants for a start. I think you can do a lot about um, the, uh, the, the how land is valued and how it's owned. I mean, it's not you know w w the land ownership system in the UK is very different from land ownership systems in other countries, and uh, we can learn from places like Vienna and Singapore about state ownership of land and how that helps to make um, uh, housing affordable for everybody or for a much wider range of people so um, and I and I think it's important there's, there's often a kind of uh, the automatic response to the housing shortage is that we must build 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 but we must think about the uh, impact on the natural environment of build 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 and what we really could do most usefully is a massive uh, retrofitting program to make sure that we are refurbishing old stock, that we're making houses that are uh, you know, buildings that are no good for um, anything else into homes, decent homes for people. We can do all of these things and it creates jobs for people. It's a part of the Green New Deal. It's really you know, a good way of uh, one of good way of addressing the housing crisis. James? I think housing is a slightly depressing one because I think it's one of those areas where the you know kind of how do we get where we want to get to the answer is don't start from here and it's um, it's and it's kind of given where we are in Britain um what can we do um yeah, I mean I think the only point I'd emphasize I think um from what I said is um is the private rental sector which is you know it's um extraordinary that really you have fewer rights even now um, you know, if you buy a toaster and if you're renting a flat, I mean, really the kind of your actual protections um, are still so, um, you know, there's, there's just no real protection, despite that being clearly one of the main ways in which people have to spend money and so vital to people's well-being. So um, that seems to me kind of in need of quite, quite kind of radical reform. I want to return to another question that we asked earlier, but it also links to a couple of questions we've had from the audience, which is about what are we trying to achieve here what are the big things we're trying to achieve here you know is this about um supporting people to give secure livelihoods or is it about supporting them to advance in the in in the way they want to do as 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 individuals and as society as a whole or is it both of those things that you're looking to do uh, james yeah i think um i think this is a was a very, it's another very big question i think um I think I suppose the point I'd make is when you step back, I think there's something interesting about um, how narrowly technocratic our answer to that question has become in the last, say, 50 to 70 years. And I think there's something very interesting, I think, for progressives to think through about 
the way in which, for example, economics has come to dominate so much of our debate about public policy. And um, again, I said, you know, I kind of, yeah, sort of, uh, many, a lot of my best friends are economists, so I'm not, I'm not kind of having a dig at economists. But um, there's something just really interesting that we, we came to measure so much um, in economic terms and therefore being quite narrow about, about what we're trying to achieve. Um, and even, even beyond that, I think there's just something interesting about you know, the debate about how we measure well-being in a, in a broader way. And uh, one of the examples in the book I talk about is, um, is healthcare and the way in which obviously in the 20th century we built, you know, understandably we built healthcare systems to do something quite simple, which was keep us alive as long as we possibly could. Um, because when we built those systems, when we started, life expectancy was 40, you know, um, and, so, and we had huge success on that. Um, and in that case, where, where's the next big push on healthcare? You, you, know, you would have to think mental health and well-being um, and thinking more about quality of life and are people feel fulfilled and feeling secure and, and do people have good mental health and not just how do we keep our bodies alive as long as we can? And I think that's just that kind of shift repeats itself in a lot of these debates of um, being a bit less sort of um, yeah, technocratic and thinking a bit more about the human behind a lot of these numbers. Anna? Well, I go back to my the slide on with using Kate Raworth's donut. I mean, we're trying to create a safe and just space for, for humanity. We're trying to promote um, well-being for everyone in a world that is uh, that is safeguarded and uh, within planetary boundaries so we that, that those are the two things we need to do and i, I think um it's useful to think about and i think this picks up a theme that james was possibly raising is that the healthcare system whether it's health is not just about treatment and cure it's about prevention or should be my goodness we've got a lot long way to go there to think about shifting back to designing our our whole welfare system to think about preventing harm as well as you know enabling people to uh, to have lives that they to live lives that they value to participate in society and to flourish within the limits of the natural environment so that's where we start and i think that ensure the idea that we must ensure that everyone has access to life's essentials which is the the sort of bedrock of the social guarantee is a, is a good starting point it's not you know, it's not the only thing, but it is a useful starting point. I'm afraid we're out of time now. Um, we've um, It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, thank you both very much. Um, these are debates which are going to continue this afternoon and well into the future. I do urge you to read all the material that we've suggested um, in the chat, um, Anna's books, Jane's new book, um, and also the other material which will come up in the discussions this afternoon. We are ending this session now. Um, and I'm going to bring in, well, first of all, thank you very much to Anna and James for joining us. And I'm now going to bring in Nick Pierce, who's going to uh, update us as our host. Thank you very much. <laughs>